Well, hello, everybody. You ready? Hey, one thing real quick. There's a passage in, this is, this is, a, this is bonus. Okay, you're, you're welcome. Um, there's a passage in Hebrews chapter 11. It talks about the hall of faith, and it kind of walks through people who have done some amazing work for the gospel that you never heard of, right? People who weren't apostles, people who weren't, uh, didn't get a lot of, didn't get a lot of uh, notoriety and didn't get a lot of headlines. Katie Anderson is one of those people. And so uh, if you've never had an opportunity to hear about what's going on with them and the work that they do is pretty incredible. And so uh, today we're in the series called Identity. Let's all say that together. Identity, yeah, let's say that together. I didn't, I didn't say it with you, did I? That was the problem. Uh, one of the things we've been unpacking just in this series, we started it last week, was just this reality um, that, that so many people don't know who they are. Have you ever met somebody and they're just comfortable in their own skin? You know, they could celebrate with other people you could tell when you met them, they weren't necessarily concerned with making a good first impression because they felt like their first impression was going to be great. They just were that confident um, that they could celebrate with others, they could mourn with others, that nothing seemed to shake them or knock them off their foundation. They just seemed to have this settled confidence. And this is what it means to walk in a, in a confident identity. And the truth is, who you think you are drives everything about you, drives what you believe, it drives what you say, and it drives what you do. It drives everything. So it drives how, you know, what career path you will run down. It drives um, the way that you make decisions. It drives what schools you would apply to. It drives what relationships you will enter into. And so many times it happens and we don't even realize that it's happening to us. That we're making decisions and, and, and saying things and believing things and we're not even sure where it went. Quick story of how this looks. I had a friend of mine who was a Navy SEAL and, you know, those guys let's just say they're very efficient at their job, right? I mean, they are probably, in my mind, some of the most courageous people that you could meet. Well, his Frank's telling me his story. He tells me his story, and he grew up, and his dad always told him what a scaredy cat he was. So he grew up believing he was a scaredy cat, yet turned into a Navy SEAL and never made the connection between the two. And sometimes that can happen to us if we're not careful. If we don't understand who we're supposed to be, the world out there can tell us who to be. Amen, somebody? Right, the world. We have, man, there's algorithms worth billions of dollars to tell us who to be, right? To tell us how to think and how to vote and what to buy and what to wear. And it's not just about marketing, it's about identity. And then also, uh, we, we have this tendency to name ourselves. Anybody ever call yourself some names? Maybe you make a wrong turn going to the grocery store. You call yourself some names like, where did that come from? That felt violent just because I was going to get some milk. You know, we, we call ourselves some names. And generally what happens is those negative words are what come to mind. But when God calls us something, when we get our identity from God, that's not the way it works. And so last week, we just really began to unpack this idea of, of who we are. So let me ask you, who do you think you are? Turn to your neighbor, someone next to you, say, who do you think you are? You didn't really do it, did you? I can tell. Say, now say back to your neighbor, you are smart, you are kind, you are important. No, I'm just kidding. So, so how we think about ourselves is really, really important. Now, now we're going to look at two words today in the Bible. Now, now, in the Bible, the word Christian is used three times, like just three times. Now, it feels like that word would be used more than three, but it's used three times. The first time it's used, it's an insult, actually, that someone was criticizing someone for following Christ, following the way. But Paul uses two words to describe people who follow Jesus. Now, two words can be important, can't they? You don't have to have a lot of words to say something that matters. 
Don't you? Don't you know that? Like sometimes you're like, Stephen, you could say that in fewer words. I get it. That's, that's, the, that's a job hazard that I have. But, but you can say things like this, marry me. I can change lives. I will. Thank you. Pretty powerful. I'm pregnant. Not me, but maybe one of you. Um, like there's two words. That they, they can be powerful. And Paul is going to point out two words Today, while Christian is used three times, these two words are used over 200 times in the Bible. They're used 60 times in this particular portion of scripture that we're looking at over this series, and it's these two words, in Christ. Let's say these two words together, in Christ. This is an identity. This is what Paul says is violently important, that we need to know what it means to be in Christ. It's gonna shape our soul. It provides clarity on our identity, and it provides confidence for decisions, provides hope for the future, and it can reconcile races. These two words can heal broken marriages. It can transcend categories. It can make enemies, friends. It can join nations. It can free addicts. I mean, these two words are powerful for us to be able to unpack exactly what they mean today. So as we look in this particular passage in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit because we are going through this entire book of Ephesians. You know, the Bible is actually a compilation of 66 books. And one of them is Ephesians. That is a letter that was written. And I'll unpack a little bit of that. But we're going to walk all the way through this letter over the course of this series. And to start it off in verse 1, it says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. So when he writes that saints in Ephesus, he's writing it to a specific church. In Ephesus, that's the city that they lived in. They're faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you see the first instance of in Christ. So a little bit about Ephesus, because it's, it's kind of important for us to be able to connect. Because sometimes when you read something or hear something out of the Bible, you may think, yeah, that happened in some dusty town out in the middle of nowhere, population 300. You know, they got some camels tied up outside a saloon somewhere, you know. We don't think of it as a metropolis that of Ephesus was. So Ephesus was a city, uh, a cosmopolitan city of about 300,000 people. Now, in that culture, you had Rome, which was the number one city. Then you had, so if, if you were to think of like the number one city in the United States, probably something like New York City would bubble up. You know what I mean? Highest population, financial center, a lot of uh, important things happening in that city um, with millions of people. So that would have been Rome. But then Rome had... Uh, the, the empire of Rome had Alexandria, and then it had Ephesus. So, you know, in the United States, you have probably some second-tier cities, you know, maybe like Atlanta and maybe Dallas, Texas, you know. And then you have some third-tier cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco, Mobile, Alabama, you know. Those are kind of down towards the bottom a little bit. But, but you get this idea. Ephesus was a really important city. It was the crossroads of travel because it was on the Mediterranean Sea at the mouth of a very large river. So you had trade routes that, flew, that flowed through there. So there was a lot of travel. Uh, you know, Atlanta's that airport is uh, home to 93 million visitors every single year. Think about that. Almost 100 million people come through our airport. Many people move here so they can get in and out of the airport because of travel. Uh, Ephesus was extremely wealthy. Man, Ephesus was a religious epicenter. There was a temple there. Um, it was an entertainment center. They had an amphitheater that seated 50,000 people. So think about this for a second. Uh, State Farm Arena seats somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people, depending on the event. 
Uh, Mercedes-Benz will seat 72,000, although not that many go and see the Falcons for obvious reasons. 50,000 people in this amphitheater. So the people that Paul is writing to, they're influencers, and they're movers and they're shakers. They're people who start businesses, who know how to make money. They're people kind of like us. And Paul is writing to them, and the thing he doubles down on, the thing he talks about the most, is they're not just Ephesians living in Ephesus. They are Christians in Christ, is Paul's point. And Paul just unpacks what it means. Now, now, also, if we just looked at this church, this Ephesian church, so because it's in Ephesus, they're called Ephesians. That's hence the letter Ephesians. Now, the, the Ephesian church, Paul had actually started this church. Paul was on a journey, and he went through Ephesus, and he stayed there for just a little over two years. And while he's there, he's very bold in evangelizing, and he is able to just literally riots begin to break out because as people begin to follow Christ, their businesses get disrupted, and, they, and it cuts off uh, the supply chain for some people and the things that they sold and the way that they made a living. And so riots break out, but this church begins to emerge. It's even thought that... Uh, Mary, Jesus' mom, and John, one of the apostles, lived in Ephesus at this time. So it, the church is very important. They're a hotbed. They're, they're planting churches all over the region. And so Paul is now in Rome. He is in prison. Now, Paul's been thrown in prison for sharing the gospel. And he finds himself in Rome. He's, in Al, he's not in Alcatraz. He's, in, uh, he's in, under house arrest at this moment when he writes this back. Now, Ephesians is really important uh, because it's in the Bible, but also even within the context of the Bible, it's looked at as being one of the most important passages that we see, one of the most important books. It's the most theologically rich book outside the book of Romans. It's the second clearest picture of the gospel in, in all of scripture, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. It contains the greatest prayer in the Bible, many people say. Passages from Ephesians are read at weddings. If you've ever been in a wedding and the, and the charge to the husband is to love your, love your wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that comes out of the book of Ephesians. It's where we learn about the spiritual armor. It was John Calvin's favorite book, John Calvin, a French reformer. Martin Luther said this, he characterized it as among the best and noblest books of the New Testament. It's been said of Ephesians, it's one of the most significant documents ever written. It is doctrine set to music. It is the crown of Paul's writings. Theological gold is what someone called it. And the greatest piece of writing in all of history. And at its heart, Ephesians is a letter about identity. It's about being in Christ Paul, is, even as you read this, this particular passage is a long run-on sentence. Any English teachers in here just drive you crazy, right? Some dangling participles, split infinitives, all that's in here. And it's as if Paul just had this urgency and he couldn't say it loud enough and he couldn't say it fast enough as he started off in verse four. And in these 14 verses, this is what he says, and I'm just gonna go through it really fast. He says, you're a saint, you're faithful, you're blessed, you're chosen. You're holy, you're blameless, you're predestined, you're adopted, you're given purpose, you're redeemed, you're forgiven, you're wise, you've received revelation, you're given an inheritance, you have hope, you have truth, you have salvation, you're sealed to the praise of his glory, all tied together with these words, in Christ, in Christ. This is, this is the gold that is the book of Ephesians. Now, as we think about what these words in Christ mean, it just means identifying principle, okay? It just means how you're identified. 
And in is an important word in the Bible. So think about this. Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden. Okay, that is where they are. How many guys have heard the story of Noah? Anybody? Handful? Like Noah is this story where God tells Noah and his family to build an ark. They build an ark and they do what? They get in the ark. Rain comes, flood comes, the earth is destroyed. Noah and his family and the animals survive because they are in the ark. So we get this idea. That is an image. It's a metaphor. We see that of what Jesus has done for us when we are in Christ. We are identified with him. You know, and we tend to identify with things that we're in, you know, like I'm in boots today. You are in the house. And if you like your house or your apartment or wherever you're staying, you feel good about yourself. Some of you are in fashion. <laughs> Some are in debt. Defines you, doesn't it? The word in just has this ability to, to, to identify us. And many times it, it defines us. And Paul says we are in Christ. And the thing about being in Christ, you can't be taken out. Right? You can't be taken out. Over in, in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote this part of the Bible too. He says this, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Like you can be out of a lot of things. You can be out of work, you're in Christ. You can be out of time, you're in Christ. You can be out of luck, you're in Christ. You can be out of a relationship, you're in Christ. You can be out of money, you're in Christ. You can be out of runway, you're in Christ, is what Paul is saying. And if we're honest, we know that this world is gonna have the ability to take a lot of things away from us. You know, eventually it's gonna take your hair. Come on, somebody. It's gonna take your health. It can take your reputation. It can take your uh, popularity. It can take your agenda. It can take your comfort. But guess what? You are in Christ. It can never be taken away. This is how important Paul says this is, doubles down on it. Now, now there's some benefits that come. And the way that we would look at it, the way you'd say this in Christ, this is what's coming for Jesus actually is coming for me. Like, think about this. What's coming for Jesus actually is coming for me. We saw what he rose from the dead. It's coming for me. It's coming for me. Eternal life, it's, it's coming for me. A home in heaven, guess what? That is coming for me. I get, we get the benefits, the privileges, and the blessing of what happened in Christ. Like, don't miss that. We get the benefits, the privileges, and the blessing of what's coming for Christ. We get that because we're in Christ. Like, how many, is by way of example, how many Michigan graduates do we have in the room today? Anybody? None in here. Well, good. Um, <laughs> I was just gonna take my medicine. I'm a Georgia fan, right? So think about this. You probably, anybody, y'all know Michigan fans, anybody? You didn't before Monday. <laughs> yeah, we did. Here we go. Pastor Mike, that's why y'all didn't clap for him because you knew he was from Michigan. <laughs> nah. So Mike, Mike can say this because he, he's a Michigan fan, whether it's been in good times and bad. But you'll hear people say, and when Georgia wins, you'll say, we won. Even though you may not have played, you may not have coached, you may have given some NIL money, um, but we'll say we won, that you get the benefits and the privileges of what it means to win 
even though you didn't play in the game. So this is the imagery that we have, that Christ has given us the benefits and the privileges of all that he's done, and we didn't do anything. He just grants it to us. Why? Because we are in Christ. This is what it means. So if we looked over into verse three of Ephesians chapter one, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, so spiritual blessing, heavenly places, like what does that mean? He, he, Paul is just painting this picture that our, our identity, if we are in Christ, our identity is in heaven. Like it's not here. Like there's more to our life than this life. If there's something for us in the future, there's something coming for us in the future. I love this word blessed. How many of you guys have heard of uh, the Beatitudes where it says, blessed is he who mourns? Anybody heard of that? So this word blessed is used there. This is a different word. And this word is a compound word. It means good words. So think about it, it means good words. So what it means is God speaks good words over us. Now most people, when asked, what, what would God think of you? What words would he use? Many times, we think he may use some positive words because he has to. He's contractually obligated. And we think more God's disappointed or more God is you know, withholding judgment. We tend to think that he's looking at us more with an evil eye than with a good eye. But what this is saying is there's good things coming for us. Man, that God has good things coming for us. There are good words that he speaks over us. Um, and my identity is in heaven. This world's not our only reality. Helen Keller, who many, most people have heard of on a certain level, obviously faced, as an understatement, extreme physical problems. She said this, for three things, I thank God every day of my life. Thanks that he has vouchsafed to me knowledge of his work, and that just means given me knowledge for benefit. That's what vouchsafed means. Vouchsafed to me knowledge of his work, Deep thanks that he has set in my darkness, he was blind, a lamp of faith. And deep, deepest things, thanks, that I have another life to look forward to, a life joyous with light and flowers and heavenly song. Things that she didn't experience here. Because she knew why there's something coming for her later. Philip Yancey wrote a book called Rumors. And the whole premise behind the book is just that that, that what we experience now are just rumors of another world that are coming for us. And Yancey, in his quote, he says that, you know, God created people in his image and he gave them, uh, he gave them uh, desire, he gave them curiosity, right? He gave them restlessness. And he said, even though he, knew, he knows that they may choose to do the wrong thing with it. So, so have you ever had this experience where you thought, there's gotta be more to it than this? There's got to be more life than this. Tom Brady is kind of famous for making this quote when after one of the Super Bowls that the, when he was with the Patriots, they won. He was in an interview and he says this, I've won all this, but it seems like there's got to be more. Is, is this it? Is this all there is? I think most of us at a certain point in our life, we get this restlessness. God put that there. The Bible says this, that God has placed eternity in our hearts so that we would seek after him. Like your restlessness, God put that there. Why? So you would look after God. The reason why you think there is more, because there is. And it's gonna come for us later. So you have restlessness, you have curiosity. Anybody curious? Have you noticed that the older you get, the less curious you are? I mean, I am, because I just know it all now, right? 
That's really not true, but we get less curious. I think that's when Jesus said, you have to have the faith as a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think it was this idea of curiosity. How many parents do we have in here? Like a lot. Like you know what it's like to have a little kid in the back seat. Why, why, what? Like some of the most profound conversations happen when your kids are in the back seat and you're navigating a red light or the yield lane on Georgia 400. And they just had this curiosity. I mean, I was curious as a kid. I can remember this happened when I was, uh, we were on the way to school. I was in elementary school and I was in the car and mom, the car was warming up and we had, we had the cigarette lighter in the car. You guys remember that? It's having a cigarette lighter in the car. I mean, it was, it was great. Um, now I always, I have to go eat my bick, but uh, <laughs> jokes. Um, uh, I use matches, but uh, so you would push it in and when it heated up, it would pop out. And when you looked at it, you could light a cigarette in it. So one day I pushed it in, I popped it, I'm looking at it, and then I thought to myself, I was curious, right? I'm like, because it's orange, does that mean it's hot? And so after I left a little skin on there, I realized it was hot because I put my finger in there, right? I was curious. Now, sometimes curiosity, as Yancey was saying, can lead us down the wrong path. But the truth is, we're given curiosity as a God-given gift to drive us towards him. That's why we have curiosity. And then he, then he points out desire. That we all have these, these desires in our soul. And Jesus was a master at this. If you'll go and read through some of the times he healed people, there's a, you know, he came across a blind guy one time and he asked this question. He came across a paralyzed man one time and he asked him this question. The question he asked is, what do you want? which seems on the surface like it's obvious because a blind man wants sight and a paralyzed man wants to be able to walk. But he wasn't asking about the surface level. He was asking about the soul. Like, what do you want? He was trying to get underneath the hood of what's happening. So, so if I were to ask you the question, what do you want? How would you answer that? Like, like more than the next job or more than my problem to be solved or more than the next vacation or the next home or the next business? Like, what is it underneath the hood that you really deeply want? See, most times we don't spend a lot of time thinking about this. We just stay medicated by culture and social media and busyness and noise and entertainment. But in the quiet moments, like, what is it? What do you want? Now, now part of what Paul is also trying to paint this picture of is that spiritual realities, that one day they're gonna come, become physical realities, okay? Spiritual realities, things that we look at as spiritual, one day are gonna actually happen. We're gonna experience them. So when you hear about the peace that passes understanding, one day it won't be, under, it won't be beyond understanding because we'll understand it because we'll live in it continually, when you hear that joy comes in the morning, listen, one day it's gonna be joy continuously. We're not gonna have to wait for it. And when we hear about, you know, he's gonna wipe away every tear, it's a spiritual reality now, but eventually it's gonna be a physical reality where there will be no more tears. Like, so when he says in the heavenly places, what Paul is trying to paint is that there is a physical reality that will happen. It's a spiritual reality now, but eventually it's gonna be physical. So Paul paints this picture. Now, we experience some of that, that, again, the rumors of that now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is writing. He says, you know, right now you see as in a mirror dimly. It's like you're underwater looking. You can't quite see clearly, but you see some images. You know it's out there, but eventually face to face. 
eventually it's going to become clear. The, the Celtic Christians had this phrase, thin places. Two words, thin places. And they believed that there was times in life and in this world when heaven and earth got so close that you could literally reach, almost reach your hand through the veil and touch heaven from this side. And, and, and most of us have experienced something like that, even though we can't articulate it. Maybe you've stood on the, the, uh, at the Grand Canyon and just look at, looked out over just this massive expanse and like something in your soul just kind of jumps. Like this is massive. Or maybe uh, you're at the beach, you were up early one morning, nobody's out there and you're just kind of watching the waves show up. There's something that's just happening in your soul. You're like, man, what is that? It just feels like it's almost calling you. That'd be, that'd be a thin place. Maybe you've been in worship before, and man, you just got hit in the feels, we like to say, and you got hit in the feels, you don't know what it was, that's the Lord. That's a thin place. I was out in the lobby talking with someone after the first, after the second service. She starts telling me about this experience, and she starts crying. She says, I don't know why I'm emotional. I'm like, it's a thin place, right? It's God breaking in. And these are rumors that we get. Uh, last year, this, actually this time last year, I was on a mission trip in North Africa. And we went to this uh, church, it's called the Cave Church. And I think we have a picture of it. So, so this church isn't decades old, it's not centuries old, it's millennia old. It seats 22,000 people. And, and as you stand in a place like that and hear the history of a place like that and see the carvings on the wall that are older than anything you can imagine, there's just something about it. You feel like you should take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. Like that is the most important, inspiring, spiritual uh, uh, monument that most people have never heard of because I hadn't heard of it until I went there. Like I saw the pyramids while we were there, the Sphinx, lots of other things. That, that was worth the price of admission because something just happens in those moments, those thin places. So Paul is saying all this is just pointing to a different reality. Now in verse four, Paul says this. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us, meaning God did it, right? It's God's in charge. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You can see Paul's getting a little carried away here. So, so if we're in Christ, man, our identity is in heaven, but also we're in the family. We're in the family because notice it says we're chosen, but he uses this word adopted. Now, the word for adopted here is just a little bit different than probably we see adoption now. Some similarities, but there's some differences. Probably for us more, um, in the Roman world, like there was no safety net. So they would, if they didn't want a child, they would just leave that child exposed out in the open. And they weren't, charities actually didn't exist until the church came along. So people didn't really think about taking care of those who couldn't take care of themselves. We tend to look at adoption a little more that way. If there's some kids that would grow up, they don't have a family, we need to put them in our family. Now, Roman adoption was different than that. Romans would adopt, but the only reason, the main reason they would adopt would have been so that they could leave the inheritance to a kid. So mostly, you had wealthy families that adopted. Best example of that comes from a guy named Julius Caesar. Maybe you've heard of him. He obviously inaugurated the Roman Empire, and before they made Julius Caesar the dictator of the Roman Empire, he needed an heir. 
He didn't have an heir. So he taps a guy named Octavian, who was actually kind of a nephew, kind of two, twice removed, one of those kind of deals, right? And so he taps Octavian. Octavian was 18 when he adopted him. He was an adult. Like, generally, we wouldn't do that. Matter of fact, when our kids get 18, we're like, y'all need to get out of here, right? I mean, so he, he adopts Octavian, who becomes Caesar Augustus. Why? So he could hand him the kingdom. This is what adoption means in the Bible, that we are adopted, that God adopts us. Why? So he can give us the kingdom. In, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus speaks of this. He says this, fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with the treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So so he's saying you're going to have a kingdom in eternity, an eternal inheritance. So don't, don't worry so much about now. Be generous to other people. Store up treasures for later. That's what he's saying here because there's a different kingdom coming that is coming. We're in the family, so we get the inheritance. Also, let's jump down. Let's keep going in verse seven. He says, in him, there it is again, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So, 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 so because we are forgiven, we are in good standing with God. Like we're in good standing with God. You ever been out of good standing or hoped you were in good standing with somebody? We are in good standing with God. Now, the word for trespass, when he's talking about uh, forgiveness here, is like two people are walking along and then one of them falls off, separates themselves out. He says, you have forgiveness, you have redemption, that all the, the things that you've done in your past where you've tried to find an identity somewhere else, wiped away. Don't remember that. I'm not gonna hold that against you. You're, you're, you're free and clear of that. And what I found is that there are times in life when we commit sins, they tend to just hang on. In our minds. We continue to replay them over and over. We, we tend to make them our identity, the things that we did. And usually the worse they are, the more they become our identity. And it says here, that's not the way it should be. You know, I like to say this, Satan wants to use your past against you. He wants to remind you. It's kind of like your in-laws, right? Just going to keep reminding you of certain things. Keep bringing it up. You walk into a room meet a person for the first time, and these thoughts of what's happened, what you've done, he just wants to just overwhelm you with that thought. But Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus wants to use your past for you. He wants to redeem it. He wants to restore it. He wants to use it for you to help other people, but also he just wants to use it to show you how good he is. That's what redemption means. So we have forgiveness of sins. We are in good standing Then in verse eight, Paul says this, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So so, so if we're in Christ, we are in his plan. We're in his plan. You know, Paul's talking about a mystery and we tend to look at this mystery as like, a murder mystery that needs to get solved. But, but what Paul is, when, when he uses this word mystery, he just means something that's being revealed, something that's being unveiled. And what has been unveiled in Christ is that it has always been him. 
It has always been him. It's never been a moral agenda or a political agenda or a social agenda. It's always been Christ. When you look back at creation, that was Jesus. When you see where creation is going, that's Jesus. Paul writes it in Colossians. He says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For all things have been created by him, through him, and for him. Like everything is finding its point and its purpose in Christ. And when we pursue Christ, everything else gets added in. Like everything else you want gets thrown in because why we are, we are, we are in his plan for us. Now, now, what this brings up is that there are times when life is not easy. That's an understatement for a lot of people in the room. And life can be hard. Life can be difficult. Tears can be shed. Relationships can be broken. But, but when we are in Christ, we still find purpose even in the difficulties because God works them out for his purpose, because we are in his plan. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, again, God's in charge, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You know what that means? You know who God asks for advice? Himself. He asks himself, according to the counsel of my will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, so what, what this means is if you are in Christ, you are in his possession. You're, you're in his possession. You are owned by him. So you have... He talks about the Holy Spirit being here. And so the Holy Spirit is just God's active presence in our life, okay? This is God's active presence in our life. Have you ever had the experience where maybe you did something wrong, something simple or something big, and you thought to yourself, ooh, shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have looked at that. Like that's God's spirit, kind of pointing that out. Have you ever had the experience, I should call that person, they just came to my mind. I should text that person. And then you do, and they're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that just happened, right? That's the Holy Spirit. God's presence in our life. Some people may call it conscience, it's not conscience. It is the Holy Spirit, it's God's presence because we are God's possession now. There's a scene out of Les Mis that highlights this. How many of you guys have seen um, the Les Mis version, not Hugh Jackman, um, but Liam Neeson, I think, is who plays so we've seen that. The story goes like this. Jean Valjean, main character in the movie, gets thrown in prison for stealing some bread for his family. 30 years hard labor. So he gets released from prison only to find it's much worse than in prison. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't have identification. He doesn't have infrastructure. Nobody knows him. He has no ability. So he stumbles into a priest's home priest takes him in to spend the night and feeds him. His wife was not happy with that, if you remember the scene. And so he goes and they put him in the guest bedroom. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean wakes up and starts stealing the silver. The priest wakes up and walks in and Jean Valjean clocks him and knocks him out in the movie. And he escapes. Well, that next day, the priest and his wife are out in the garden, gardening, and he's trying to calm his wife down because their silver is gone. Then the police show up, lo and behold, 
they have Jean Valjean. They've arrested him. And they tell the priest, like, yeah, we know. He, he said you gave it to him, but we know better. And he's like, Jean Valjean, I'm so angry with you. You didn't take the candlesticks. So he doesn't accuse him, which is what they expected. He actually empowers him and gives him more than he stole. And Jean Valjean has no idea how to handle this. So he leans in and he says, what are you doing? And the priest says this. He says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I'll give you back to God. So this is the story that we have. And that God has rescued us, redeemed us, put us in the family, given us an inheritance. And we didn't have to earn it. We didn't have to work for it. He just gave it to us. Why? Because we are in Christ. We are in Christ. Now the question is, how do you get in Christ? Now, as Paul has pointed out here in many different ways, it all starts with God, that God is the God who blesses, God is a God who gives, God is a God who has good for us. And so many times we're like kids who fail a test, we blame the teacher when it was us. Things that go wrong in life, we blame God even though it was us. But God is good, and God has good plans for us. Now, the problem is we've run after our identity in so many different ways. We've looked to relationships, we've looked to careers, man, we've looked to addictions, we look to other sinful images. Man, we have looked to things to give us a sense of value and acceptance and respect that can't, have no ability to do that. Only God can do that. The Bible calls that sin when that happens. And so God provided a way out. Hope was what Paul called it in verse 13. And that hope, his name, it's not a process, it's the person, his name's Jesus. So Jesus came for us. And the only response to that is to surrender our lives to him. And when we do that, that's how we get in Christ, by following him, by giving our lives to him. That's how that happens. Now, last week, I closed out by reading some declarations over us. And um, they were really just, divert, really just, it was a snapshot of the book of Ephesians, God's word. Um, and so today, I just wanna close out that we've made that available for everybody. You'll get it on the way out. It's a 90-second daily declaration, and it really does take 90 seconds. Also on the back, you'll see there's an Ephesians reading plan as we walk through it. Um, we'd love for you to be able to go through it. If you look at that and you're like, I don't have any idea what that means. I don't know anything about the Bible. We're here to help. So, so we'd love to be able to give you the tools that you need to be able to read through, because God's Word's powerful. And if you would do that over the course of the city, uh, over the, court, the, the course of the series, you will find some things different in your life, some massive things different in your life. But I want to close today just by reading this declaration over us one more time. And so it just kind of starts out. It says, "This isn't self-help. Positive vibes are a little pick-me-up. This is a war against the schemes of the enemy." I'm going to say this every day, out loud to take hold of what is already mine in Jesus. I say this to live into my true identity. I say this so I don't forget, because we tend to forget, don't we? I'm not what the world says about me. I'm not the lies that have been spoken over me. I'm not the sum of my achievements or my mistakes. I am who God says I am. I am first and foremost a beloved child of God. God doesn't just love me, he likes me. I'm in Christ blessed with every spiritual blessing. I don't need the treasures of this world because I have an eternal inheritance. 
I'm not defective, tolerated, or an inconvenience. I am appreciated, I'm celebrated, and I'm honored. I'm not arrived, I'm not perfect, I'm not sinless, but I'm graciously and gloriously saved. I was dead, now I'm alive. I'm destined for good works, I belong. I'm a citizen, I'm a saint, and I'm a member of God's house. I don't need to fit in this world, I have a home in heaven. The world may not understand me, it didn't understand Jesus. I choose to remember I'm part of something bigger than myself. I am loved beyond understanding. I have a unique purpose in the church. I live different because Jesus has made me new. I am an imitator of God filled with the Holy Spirit. I am a relational person who loves as Jesus loves. I am a warrior equipped for battle. I refuse to believe the lies. I will not forfeit my destiny. This is who I am and am becoming. The truest thing about me is that I am a child of the one true king. Every day for a series. Let's pray together.